Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Glad you guys have chosen to come worship with us this morning. Uh, at this point, I'd invite you to go ahead and take your Bible out, and so grab it uh, from wherever you have it. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew back in, in front of you. And turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning. We will be starting a new series uh, for the next several weeks, I don't know exactly how many, called New Year, New You. So we are going to be talking about how God wants to make us new this new year. And we are going to begin in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 8 is where we will be, starting in verse 7 through 13. If you have your pew Bibles, Hebrews chapter 8 will be on page 972. Uh, most of the text, if you don't have access to either your own Bible or the pew Bible in front of you, the text should be up on the screen so you can follow along uh, either way. So Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7 and running through verse 13, is going to be our text this morning as we begin a new series for the new year, New Year, New You. So as you're getting there, I trust that you're close. Let's do this. Let's uh, bow our heads one more time. Let's pray and ask God for his grace and for his presence among us, and then we'll dive right in to see what God has in store for us this new year. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time. We do thank you for the year that has gone by. Uh, there has been uh, many good things and wonderful blessings that you've brought uh, into our life this year, and there have been hard things. There have been challenges. There have been difficulties, and uh, our life this past year has run the gamut from, uh, from good to bad and uh, a blessing to difficulties, and yet in the midst of all of this past year and in the midst of all of the anticipation that we have for the year to come, we recognize your sovereign hand over all of it. We recognize that as the, the video uh, just demonstrated to us that you indeed are the great potter and that we are uh, simply clay in your hands and that you as the great potter are shaping us and molding us and sometimes you use your soft fingers uh, to mold our character and to make us into Christ's likeness and sometimes you use something that hurts and, and it's hard and it's difficult and yet all the while through the good and the bad through the painful and the pleasurable you are shaping us into something beautiful you are making us into the very image of your son. You are making us into his likeness. You are shaping our character so that we might act like him, so that we might think like him, so that we might feel like him, so that our lives would be a, a demonstration of, of little Christs all over the world. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And we're so very grateful as we look forward to the new year and as we celebrate the year gone by that you are still doing new things, that you are still in the process of making old things new. Indeed, as your word says, you are making all things new. And it's a process, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's slow. And yet we know that your sovereign potter's hand is on the potter's wheel, and your hand is on us as your clay, and you are making all things new. We're so very grateful that you do that. Jesus, we're very grateful that you are the instrument by which your Father makes us new. We're very grateful that you have come into the world as the God-man, that you have come to not only to, to show us how to live, but to live perfectly for us. You have come to live perfectly for us because we were lacking perfect obedience, and yet you give it to us as a, as a gift. And you came and you lived the perfect life and you died the perfect death, the death that we deserved. You bore the wrath of your Father on the cross, bearing our sins, taking wrath and hell itself for us so that we might receive this wonderful gift of forgiveness of sins, of salvation, and a whole lot more as, as indeed you intend to make us a new creation. 
And so we pray that you would be doing that this morning. And if there's one uh, man or woman, if there's a, a boy or girl here who does not know what it means to trust in Christ personally and they have not been and are not being made a new creation, that this day, that the beginning of this new year, that they would come to place their faith in Jesus and that they would be born anew and be made new creatures in Christ. Father, be with us, help us, help those who are, are hearing me that they might hear well, help me to speak accurately and truthfully as we want to know how you intend to make us new people in a new year. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our God, our Savior, and our Lord, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. I ran across, as it is the new year, uh, a top 10 list of Top 10 New Year's resolutions for the year 2013. I don't know if you do the resolution thing or not. I tend to not do them because I don't fulfill them. Uh, So I tend to just not make any at all because I generally don't follow them. But maybe you're better than me. Maybe you are into the resolution thing. Regardless, I think as the new year comes upon us, we are all at least to some degree thinking about what's next. We all are to some degree thinking about something new, what will happen. We're anticipating some news in the new year. Uh, what, what, what is it that you're anticipating this year? What, what news in 2013 might you be anticipating? Maybe a, a new body from exercising more. Maybe you're anticipating a new job. Maybe you're anticipating a new house or maybe a new school year. Maybe your new driver's license for some of you. There are all sorts of news that will happen this new year. And according to, if I get this right, Dr. Richard Wiseman from the University of Bristol, who's done actually some research on this, he says these are the top 10 news or resolutions for this upcoming year. So maybe you resonate with some of them. I'll just kind of read them in, 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 in from 10 to number 1. Number, number 10 is this. Uh, the, the number 10 resolution is get along better with others. The number 9 resolution is drink less alcohol. The number 8 resolution is volunteer at a charity or a nonprofit organization. Hey, I know a good one right here if you're interested in that, right? Uh, number, what are we on? 6, uh, take a vacation. Always a good one. Number 5, quit smoking. That's number 5, actually, I think. This is number 5. Learn something new. Number 4, manage stress. I can relate to that. Number 3, get a better job. Number two, improve your finances or talk to a financial planner. And then, of course, number one resolution for 2013. Anyone want to guess? Lose weight. Yes, they say, <laughs> they say join a health club, but that essentially means lose some weight. Apparently, you ate as much as I did over the Christmas break because that's probably uh, up on the list for me as well. You know, as we look forward to the new year, there are things that we are anticipating. There are news that we want to happen in our life, things that we desire to do. And as I began to think about it, the truth struck me as I began to prepare for this sermon series, and that is that God wants to do something new in 2013 as well. Not only do we want to do something new to our bodies or to our finances or to our jobs or to our stress levels, but God himself wants to do something new. He wants to do a new work in 2013. I began this study by looking at all of the references to the word new, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I quickly found out that there were many more than I could ever manage, and so I narrowed the scope to a few passages in the Old Testament and to several passages in the New Testament, and there are still quite a few references to the word new, and what struck me was that our God is a God of the new. He likes to do new things 
things. He likes to take things that are old and make them new. He likes to take people who are sinful and make them holy. He likes to take people who hate him and cause them to love him. He likes to take people who are bent out of shape and make them straight again. He likes to do new things. And so what we're going to do for the next several weeks is talk about how God wants to make us new people for the new year. And so let's do this. If you're in Hebrews chapter 8, what I'd like to do is hold that place and begin by praying uh, just real briefly, and then we'll get right into the text. Father, again, we ask your blessing on your word. It's holy and good. Would you use it to shape us and to teach us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so how then is God going to do this? How is God going to make us new in the new year? What is his avenue for doing that? As I began to look at the New Testament in particular, it became really clear that God has one main avenue for making us new. He has one method for making people different, for changing us and bringing us from that which is old to that which is new. And it's called, rightly so, the new covenant. And so before we jump into Hebrews chapter 8, I want to explain briefly about this avenue, this method that God has for making us new people through what the New Testament and the Old Testament calls a new covenant. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this language of a covenant. You may be saying, I don't know what that means. What is this new covenant? What I'd like to do is briefly just try to sketch it out for you so that you can have some context so that when we jump into Hebrews 8 and look at some of the provisions of the new covenant that God has given us to make us new people, we can understand it a little bit better. Uh, The new covenant is simply this. The word covenant simply means an agreement. That's basically what the word means. It's an agreement. You could say it is an an, an arrangement. It's basically how God has chosen to relate to humanity. And so when you look at the term covenant, starting from Genesis and going through Revelation, what you find out is that God throughout time, throughout history, has interacted with humanity uh, through covenants, through promises, through these uh, arrangements or agreements. And we're not going to get too technical, but it's basically God saying, this is how I'm going to relate to you, and this is how I want you to relate to me. And it's it's been different throughout history. So when you read the Old Testament, you find that uh, there was a covenant that God made with Adam. Remember the arrangement. This is the garden. These are the rules. These are the boundaries. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is how I want to relate to you. He then moves on to make a covenant or an arrangement with Noah. If you remember that, he wipes out humanity after the flood. He starts afresh with Noah, and he gives some boundaries. There's a shift in how God relates to humanity. Moving on from the story of Noah, you move on to the story of Abraham. If you're familiar with Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish nation. And in Genesis 12, starting in Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to do something new uh, with humanity. I'm going to relate to humanity in in a new way. And he gives Abraham a whole slew of of promises, of covenant promises. And he says, I'm going to make a nation from you. And from your descendants, Abraham is going to be a great nation. It's going to be a special people. I'm going to bless their socks off. And what we find out is that this nation, this covenant people, is how God wants, wishes, and, and desired to display his glory among all people so that everyone would know how great it was to have God, the one true God, as their king. So he makes this agreement with Abraham. Moving on, he makes an agreement with what eventually was 
the seed of Abraham. That was the, the nation of Israel. If you recall, uh, on Mount Sinai, we have what we call the Mosaic Covenant, or, or simply the covenant or agreement that God gave to Moses. Simply uh, put, uh, Moses goes up the mountain, God gives the Ten Commandments and a whole lot more, and he says, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you as a nation and with your people. Ten Commandments and a whole lot more. And so that is uh, the covenant that we call and the Bible calls the Old Covenant. And so we're going to be talking about the New Covenant, but we have to understand a little bit about the Old Covenant first. Uh, we call it sometimes in the Bible the Law, the Mosaic Covenant. It was, it was known uh, and it was identified by some features. And so these will be familiar to you. Uh, it was known by a temple, and so God dwelled in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place, in a temple, animal sacrifices, an ethnic nation known as Israel. There was a priesthood by which people could relate to God through animal sacrifices and through a human uh, go-between, so to speak. When you think about the Old Covenant, essentially think of most of the Old Testament, most of the law, most of the prophets. They operated under this Old Covenant, called the law, and all of humanity operated under it as well. And so we have a progression of covenants. We have the last covenant being the old covenant, and then what we find out as you continue to read through the Bible is that in particular in two prophets, the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel, he promised what they promised, what they called the new covenant. And so there's a contrast. There was an old way of doing things, and now there's going to be a new covenant in which Israel, God's people, and the entirety of the world anticipated this new arrangement, this new way in which humanity was to relate to God, and this new way in which God was going to relate to humanity. And so the prophets foretold Jeremiah in particular and Ezekiel of this new covenant. Now hundreds of years passed by, and there was no new covenant. And so the people of Israel, and in a sense, all of the world awaited this new arrangement. This new arrangement in which God was going to bring about. And what we find out is when you crack open your Bible to the books of the New Testament, you get the Gospels. And what you see is the, the story of a man who is more than a man. He was the God-man. He was Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And what we find out is towards the end of his life, he's having a, a, a supper with his disciples. And he says this, it's the night before his death. He's going to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. And three days later, he's going to be resurrected from the dead. And he is going to start, he's going to initiate this new covenant. Luke 22, verse 20 says this. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, speaking of Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, this cup is the what? The new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so what we see is that with Jesus Christ, as he came into the world, as he died for our sins, and as he resurrected from the dead, that Jesus Christ initiated this new way of doing things, this new arrangement in which humanity could relate to God and in which God could relate to humanity. And that is God's avenue. This is God's avenue for making us new. And what you find out is that there are specific promises in this new covenant that are fulfilled in us today. When you read through the New Testament, what you find out is that this new covenant, though promised to the nation of Israel, has extended its borders, so to speak, and those promises apply to, to you and I, even though most of us, I would imagine, are not ethnic Jew. But what we find out is that this promise 
spilled out into all of humanity. And this new covenant is not only for the nation of Israel, but it's for everyone. And so you may be asking a question that I asked. Well, did the prophets get it wrong when they talked about this new covenant? When they, when they said that this new covenant would be to, to the nation of Israel, but now it's applying to everyone? Well, well, no, they didn't get it wrong. Essentially, as I like to see it, they had what I call tunnel vision. They had tunnel vision. So uh, it's Christmas, and I presume uh, for those of you who had kids, you did some wrapping of their gifts. And what we found is that our son in particular, Asher, well, he is my only son at this point, I think. <laughs> we'll see. We're having a third. But my son really enjoyed wrapping things. And so he, okay, Asher, we're going to wrap gifts. Let's go wrap mommy's gifts. And we would go and wrap gifts. And he loved to cut, and he loved to paste, and he loved to, to tear. And you can imagine what, you know, my wife's gifts looked like when we were done. They were pretty, pretty bad, but they were from him. But what we found out is that even more uh, enjoyable than some of the presents that he got at Christmas was the wrapping and the boxes and, you know, the things that uh, the wrapping paper comes in, those long tubes. Do your kids like to play with those? My kids like to play with those, sometimes even more than the toys. And so we wonder, Let's just get them those things, right? They'll enjoy them more. But what Asher would do is he would get that long slender tube and he would put it up to his eye. You've done this before, right? And he would look and he would say, Daddy, it's a, it's a, it's a microscope. Or Daddy, it's a telescope. Daddy, I can, I can see better, you know. Let me look at you. And I'd put my eye on the other end and he'd be looking at things. And he had this, this idea in his head, though wrong, that he could see better when he looked. Well, what he had essentially was tunnel vision. He looked through it And when you look through a tunnel, what do you see? You just see what's before you, right? But there are other things, there are other realities outside of that little tunnel vision that you just don't see because your lens is so narrow. And so in a similar way, what the prophets did is they looked and they had this tunnel vision and they prophesied that the nation of Israel would receive these covenant blessings, this new arrangement of doing things. And they were right the nation of Israel did receive this, but what they didn't see was everything that was outside the scope of this tunnel, which was that you and I have the blessings of this new covenant arrangement. The point of this beginning section of the new covenant is simply this. The new covenant is God's way of making a new you in the new year. The new covenant is God's way of making a a new you and making a new me in the new year. And so what we're going to do for the next several weeks is take a look at some of the provisions, some of the promises, some of the things that God uses to make us new. There are four, as far as I see it, in this text in Hebrews chapter 8. Four promises, and they're four news, so to speak. Jot these down. We're only going to take a look at one of them today. But as I see it, the first thing that we see, number one, is a new power a new power, that God promises us a new power to obey him. The second thing is, is a new proximity, and they're all P's just because it's fun that way. A, a new proximity, that is a new relationship that we can have with God. The third one is, an, is a new passion, that is God changes our hearts and makes a hardened heart soft. And then the fourth provision I call a new purity, that is he gives us a new sense of uh, forgiveness and a lack of guilt. And so those are the four provisions of this new covenant that God is going to use to make you and me new in 2013. What I want to do this morning is to shift gears and look at the first. We're just going to look at the first. We're not going to look at all four. So we're going to focus in then on this new power, this 
provision of a new power that God has given us to obey him the way that he desires and the way that he deserves to be obeyed. And so look now at your text in Hebrews chapter 8. What we're going to do is let's read all of this, and then we're going to focus in on verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. But let's read all of it just so we get some context. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7, and we'll read through verse 13. Hebrews 8, verse 7, it says this, For there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, remember, law, Mosaic covenant, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people, that is the nation of Israel, and said, and here he's quoting uh, an Old Testament prophet, prophet Jeremiah, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, and here are the four provisions. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And he concludes by saying this, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And that is God's holy word. So for the rest of our time, I want us to see two things. I want us to see a couple things about this new power. First of all, in verses 7 through 9, I want us to see our need for it. I want us to see that we have a great need for a new power to obey God as he deserves. And then secondly, in verse 10, we're going to see the provision of it. That is, the provision of this new power, where it comes from how it works. So let's look now and focus a little bit on verses 7 through 9 as we see the need for this new power. Essentially, he begins by saying, we utterly lack power as humans. We lack power to obey God as he desires. So let's look again. Let's focus in on verses 7 through 9. Notice what he is going to say. Verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Essentially what he's saying is if the first covenant, if the law, if the old covenant would have been good, if it would have worked, well then there would be no promise of a new. But he identifies that there was something wrong with the covenant. But he's going to clarify. Because what he's going to say is that it was nothing wrong with the law itself. There was nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. There was nothing wrong with all of the hundreds of laws that were in the Old Testament. No, the problem didn't lie with the law. The problem lied with the people. Notice what he says. Verse 8, but God found fault with the what? What does it say, church? The people. But God found fault with the people. He's speaking of Old Testament Israel, but most certainly they were a test case of all of humanity. And what he's going to describe is that There was fault with the people. God's demanding these things of us were not wrong. We just couldn't do it. We lacked the power. 
He says, the days are, cl- are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and of Judah. And he, he, he distinguishes it. Verse 9, it will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, uh, out of Egypt with a mighty hand because they did not, notice this, because they did not, what? Remain faithful. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The first thing that we see about this new power is that we desperately need it. It wasn't that the Ten Commandments were wrong. It wasn't that God demanding things of humanity, demanding things of us, were wrong. It was right. It was good. We just lacked the power. We couldn't do it. Interestingly enough, when you read the Old Testament, what you find is that there is a story, and God brought Moses up to the mountain. He gives the law, and he makes this covenant with his people. And I'd like to read a short text in Deuteronomy 5, which is kind of a a second take at it. And so Moses brings down the Ten Commandments, and he reads it to the people. And he says, this is what God demands of you. This is what God requires of you. And this is, uh, this is what happens. Verse 27. Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen, and we will obey. That's what the people say. We're going to listen, and we're going to obey, right? Verse 28. And this is what Moses says. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me. So they say, we're going to obey you, God. And God says, this is what you need to tell them. I heard that you promised that you would listen and obey, but here's my word to you. Quote, I have heard what this people has said to you, Moses. Everything they said was good. It was good that they wanted to obey me. And then notice what he said, and there's a key word. Oh, that their hearts... Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep all of my commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. So Israel and humanity as a whole says, we will obey you, God. And God says, that's great, but you don't have the power to. That's great, but you don't have the heart. There needs to be a change. There needs to be some kind of supernatural ability. And so As a test case for all of humanity, Israel wanted to obey God, and yet it shows, and as we read the story of the nation of Israel, they were a rebellious people. It shows that they and we are rebels at heart. We're bent towards sin and independence. The problem with the old covenant, that is God just saying, here's what I want you to do. Do it. It's not with God. It's not with what he wants. It's with me. <laughs> and it's with you. And, and so think of it this way. The law, God's commandments, this old way of doing things, simply God saying, this is how you must do it. The old covenant is like water skis without a boat. I don't know if you've ever been water skiing before. Uh, I'm not much of a water skier. I did a little bit when I was a a child. But for those of you who always invite me to go water skiing with you over the summer, I enjoy it, and I always decline mostly because I don't want to make a fool out of myself, um, but I, I enjoy my time with you. And so I, re- I remember, I think it was Penn Stoller was learning how to ski, and we were on the boat, and they got him in the skis, right? And they got him all ready, and he, he has the, the rope, and he's ready to go. And in that moment, he's, he's sinking. He's kind of sinking in the water, and his, his, uh, you know, his heels are up, and he's ready to go. But the law is kind of like Penn Stoller at that point. He has the the skis, which in theory at some point will enable him to kind of glide over the water and will enable him to overcome gravity's downward pull. But he needs something, right? The skis provide direction. They provide a sense of how it should go. 
But what is lacking in that moment? I mean, what, what needs to happen as Pin is sitting there on the water and he's ready to go? What does he need to say? Okay, Dad, go, <laughs> right? Or okay, uh, Uncle Gary, go. Take the, the power that's in that boat, hit the gas, and cause me to come up out of the water and ski. And so the law is kind of like water skis without a boat. It gives direction, it gives stability in a sense, but it doesn't give you a power supply. When God in the old covenant just saying, this is what I want you to do, he doesn't provide the power to do it. What we need is something outside of ourselves, a power outside of ourselves to propel us out of the water, so to speak, to propel us out of our natural tendency to sin. And so what we see in verses 7 through 9 is that we have a desperate need for a God-given power to help us obey. So what is that provision? How does God do it? Well, let's look now at verse 10, at the provision of this new power. We desperately need it. What does it look like? Well, the, new co- the first new covenant, covenant promise is found in verse 10. This is the covenant in verse 10 that I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, and here it is, the first little bit, the new power. I will put my laws in their what, church? Minds. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their what? Hearts. I will put my law on their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This is strikingly different from the way that God interacted with humanity before the coming of Christ. This is utterly different because remember, how did they receive the law? How did they receive God's commandments? Where did, where did God write down what he wanted them to do? They were written, at least initially, on two what? Stone tablets, right? And so they were written down on something external to them. They were written down on stone tablets, and then they were written down on whatever it was they used to write down things on, but they were commandments that were external to them, right? It was God saying, this is what I want you to do, and it was external. It was outside of them. But notice this new covenant. It's utterly different. God is not writing his law on stone, but he's writing it inside. He's writing it inside of us. He's writing it in our minds and in our hearts, speaking to, to, the, to the inside of who we are. He's writing it inside of us. He's giving us a new power. It's internal. And when we look at Ezekiel 36, which is a parallel passage, it's also a passage that speaks of the new covenant. We get even more specific. How, how is God going to do this? He's going to personally provide empowering enablement from within. He himself is going to, in a sense, indwell us. Notice what Ezekiel 36, 17 says. God promises as a part of this new covenant, I will put my spirit That is God himself, the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit in you and move you. Notice that language. I will put my spirit in you and move you like a boat moves somebody skiing. Move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my commandments. And so what is this new covenant provision? What is the provision of the new power? Where does it come from? It's God himself coming to indwell humanity in some sense. It's him giving us his Holy Spirit to write the law on our hearts, on our hearts and on our minds so that we can then obey him. 
like he desires for us to obey. Uh, By way of illustration, I think of it this way. Which would you rather have? Let's say you are an an inspired or an aspiring basketball player. Now, when I was young, I was an aspiring basketball player. I didn't realize that I was 5'10 and white, and I couldn't really do much. But I I aspired. I watched Jordan do his thing back in the heyday. I watched Magic and Bird. Oh, those were the great days of basketball. Was that the 80s, right? Uh, Maybe early 90s? The good old days of basketball. And I would watch these guys do their thing, and I thought, if I lower the rim to eight and a half feet, I could do that, you know? I could dunk like MJ. And so I would do the whole tongue out thing and split the legs, try to dunk, you know. Um, I, so if, if you're in a, let's just pretend at this point that we are all aspiring basketball players in spite of your skill level or lack thereof. Let's say you want to play basketball. What, what's the best way to, to, to be a really good player? A, a couple things. Let's say, let's say you got a phone call. And of course, this probably won't ever happen. But let's just say you get a phone call and, and the number is an unknown number and you happen to click it on because you're interested. So, you know, hello. And the, the voice is, is the voice of none other than the great legend Michael Jordan here from the Chicago Bulls. I'm not going to impersonate him, but let's just say, hello, this is Michael Jordan. And after you get over the shock of getting a phone call from Michael Jordan, he says, I hear that you're a, an aspiring basketball player. And so what I've agreed to do, because I'm a great basketball player, is to come give you some personal lessons. So let's meet up tomorrow, and you're there. Wherever it is, you're there. And so you go, and you meet with Michael Jordan, and he agrees for a day or two, or let's say a month or two, to be a personal trainer, to teach you how to play basketball. Now, he's going to do all sorts of things. He's going to show you how to dribble like he can dribble. He's going to show you how to do a crossover so you can juke the guy or gal in front of you. He's going to show you how he posts up and how he was very efficient at doing that. He's going to show you how to play defense. He's going to show you technique. He's going to teach you with his mouth. He's going to give you instructions, right? So let me ask you, would that make you a better basketball player? Yeah, it would make you a better basketball player to some degree. But let's say you're me. Is that going to make me a Michael Jordan-esque basketball player? No, of course not. Thank you, whoever said that. No. The answer is, yeah, with emphasis, no. It will not make me play like Michael Jordan. I might be better, but I'm not going to play like Michael Jordan, okay? Now let's just, now we're going to get to the real fantasy part of this illustration. Let's say that he said, okay, instead of being a personal trainer and giving you uh, instructions and commands from the outside, take this little pill, here it is, you swallow it and you take the pill, and the pill will magically allow Michael Jordan to jump into this 5'10 white, kind of, you know, overweight uh, body, and, and he will somehow supernaturally enable me to play like him. So that when I dunk, I wag my tongue, and I jump, you know, way over guys instead of not very much, okay? And when I shoot threes, they actually go in instead of air balls, right? So when he comes in and he, he uses his skills in me, would that make me a Jordan-esque basketball player? Yes. And, and the point of the illustration is, is hopefully clear. This is what God is doing in the new covenant. The old covenant was like Michael Jordan coming and being your trainer. The commands and the help, it's good. It's right. You just don't have the power. <laughs> you just can't. You don't have the skill. And so neither did Israel and neither do any of us. And so what God says is, listen, I want to make a new you. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring about this new covenant through my son, Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, and if you place your faith in him, then what's going to happen is you will have this new provision and a new power. And in a sense, I, myself, God, the Holy Spirit, will play through you. 
I'll play life through you because I will personally indwell and enable you to obey. And that is the provision of new power. So what does it matter? We're going to wrap up here in a few minutes. What does it matter? Let me suggest to you uh, two or three applications for this first provision of a new power. First of all, it matters because what we see is that apart from this happening, apart from the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us through personal faith in Christ, apart from getting in on this new covenant deal that God has arranged for us, we, hear me, hear me, we cannot obey God good enough. We cannot obey God good enough to get into heaven. Our obedience, apart from this new covenant provision, is lacking. We don't have the power to perfectly obey. And God is holy, and that's what he demands for us to be in relationship with him, is perfect obedience. I have never done it. You have never done it. No one has ever done it except for the man, Jesus Christ. He himself, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, as we see in the Gospels, lived a perfect life of obedience. He began the new covenant and he promises us the Holy Spirit not to make us perfect, but to begin to enable us internally, supernaturally to obey him. And so have you made that kind of decision? Are you a part of this new covenant through personal faith in Christ? You need perfect obedience. Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever obeyed and he offers you this righteousness, this perfect obedience. He says you can have my perfect life and my death for your sins if you simply receive it by faith. And so this morning, the first why does it matter is if you've never done that, if you've never personally trusted in Christ, that is the first step. That's the first way that God wants to make a new you in the new year is by entering in to his avenue for making new people, which is the new covenant through faith in Christ. A couple things. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're a Christian. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You've been born again. What then does this mean, this new power? How does it affect us? What should we do with it? A couple things. First of all, what I think it means is that since we have God the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he's, he's not just an entity, okay? <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not just a force like we see on Star Wars. He's a person like the Father and the Son, he is a person that we can interact with, that it somehow indwells us. He permanently enables and empowers us. And so what this means, hear this, is that if you're a Christian, the spiritual life, the spiritual life and obedience does not begin with simply obeying. I hope that doesn't sound like heresy. It the, the spiritual life simply does not begin with obedience, with trying harder, with putting more effort, but it begins with reliance. And that's our first point, is that we need to rely then on the relationship that we have with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit that lives within. It is reliance. If you recall Jesus' words in John 15, John 15, Jesus says, abide in me and, and I will abide in you and you can't do anything without me. I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you abide in me, if you have this close, connected relationship with me, then what's the inevitable result? You're gonna bear fruit, right? The emphasis there is on abiding in the relationship that we have with Jesus and the enablement of the Holy Spirit. It's the relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, that then allows us to obey. It produces obedience, and so for me, as I've thought through this, 
what this means for me, and what I think it means for you if you're a Christian, is that for me, I want God to make me new in the new year because I want to know him more. Like, I want to draw nearer to him. I can't just obey. I need to, I need to love him. <laughs> I need to pursue him. I need to draw near to him. And so, if we are lacking in obedience, if our life is not producing much spiritual fruit, and you're a Christian, then what I need to ask myself is, how is my relationship? How is my relationship with God through faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit? Because if I'm lacking that relationship, most likely I'm lacking in my obedience. Most likely I'm lacking in time away from the word. Most likely I'm lacking in time and prayer and other spiritual disciplines like coming and gathering and being in a small group and under the word and under good teaching. I'm lacking these things. I'm lacking in my relationship. So how about you? Have you been feeling kind of powerless as a Christian? I have from time to time. And I find that it's not when I am on my, off my game. It's not when I'm not trying to obey. It's when I'm not relating to my God. And so first of all, we need to rely on the relationship. And second of all, the second implication is, is simply, simply this, that there are no more excuses. There are no more excuses as Christians. That is, there is no sin, there is no habit, uh, there's nothing that we must be enslaved to. I'm not talking about being p- perfect. I'm not talking about being sinless. I'm talking about making progress. If you're a Christian, there's something you struggle with. That's all of us, I think. We struggle with sin. There's, we can't make excuses. What we have within us is God himself. We have God himself here to empower and enable us to make progress. And so what we can't say is this. We can't say, I'm always gonna be a drunk. What we can't say is, I'm always going to lose my temper. What we can't say is, I'm never going to be able to forgive. What we can't say is, I'm always going to struggle with worry. What is it that you always say? How would you fill in in the blank? I'm always going to what? What is it for you? There are no more excuses. Dwight Edwards, in his wonderful little book, Revolution Within, says it this way. This great provision of the new power, he says, forever silences our, our reasons for exemption from radical godliness. Resurrection power is always greater than the dysfunctionality of our past, the wounds of abuse, the power of sin, the pressure of outward circumstances, and our personal inadequacies. And of course, the great theologian Augustine said long ago, he said this to himself as he struggled with sin. He said, you fool, do you not know that you carry around God in your body? Do you not know that you carry around God in your body? Christian, so do you, and so do I. And so wrapping up, what are some of the new things this year? As you anticipate 2013, what are, what are your resolutions? What would you like to change? What are some things that you would like to make new? You know, in this year, God wants to make you new. He wants to do something new as well. He wants a new you for the new year. And the way he is going to do that is through the provisions of the new covenant. Let's pray together. What I'd like for us to do is I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask us to stand, and we'll read a a blessing, a prayer together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people who have gathered to sit under your word through the Holy Spirit and glory to Jesus and to hear about this wonderful provision of how you make people 
new. Father, I want to be made new. There are many people here who want to be made new. They're Christians, and they need this new power. We need for you to enable us. And so help us to draw near to you, to know it's about pursuing a relationship first, and in that we will bear much fruit, and your Holy Spirit will enable us to obey where we couldn't. Father, if there are people here who are outsiders to this new covenant, they've never placed their faith in the author of that covenant, Jesus Christ, in his death for their sins and in his obedient life for them, that they would come right now to the place of recognizing that they are a sinner, that they would say, God, I'm a sinner, I fall short, I, I, I don't have the ability to perfectly obey you, but I tr- put my faith and trust in the one who perfectly obeyed by the power of the Spirit, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ. I put my faith in his life for me and in his death for me, taking the wrath and the hell and the sin that I deserved, and he took it for me, and he rose from the dead, and I have my faith and I trust in that and that alone to make me right with you and to become a member of this new covenant. I pray if there are people here that they would make that decision today. And so be with us as we go. Help us as we anticipate this new year because you are making all things new. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now for our closing blessing. We're gonna do something different. I'm gonna ask you guys to read this very short prayer with me. It's from St. Augustine. He says this, if you'll read it together and then we'll be done. My entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. And God's people said, amen. Have a happy new year. We'll see you next Sunday.